The title of my message this morning is Judge Not. Let us begin by reading in verse 1 of chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrites. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you into pieces. One of the pastors that I sat under for years said in one of his messages, he said that, One of the verses that the world knows very well, and that is Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you not be judged. Often used by the world to shut down a conversation between two individuals. It is a verse that is used incorrectly 98% of the time that it is used. We as Christians in America, again, have to remember that when these words were spoken and heard by the audiences in which they were uh, delivered to initially, these words were understood in a very specific way. And it's so important that if we properly interpret the Bible, that we interpret the Bible as they heard it originally and not draw it in unnecessarily to the cultural context of today. What does Jesus mean when he says, judge not, that you be not judged? Was there historical um, concerns that he was dealing with there in Israel concerning the announcement and the arrival of the kingdom of heaven? Did he anticipate problems arising as the gospel went forward, and again, as he is initiating and inaugurating the kingdom of God here in the Sermon of the Mount, we find that he is preparing the people's hearts for what is coming next. So it is important for us to realize, first and foremost, how much division was in the nation of Israel at that time. I'm talking about social division. Significant division amongst demographics found within that nation. And many were very critical towards others within the nation. And you find this throughout the Gospels. Once you recognize it and once you realize it, you find his words to be much more understandable because you see that he's speaking into the Uh, culture of that time and he's trying to correct a problem that's going to occur before it occurs for example there was a huge division between the religious leaders and everybody else in the nation of israel enormous division and you see that throughout the gospels the people didn't respect the religious leaders any longer historians also confirm that due to the fact that the corruption amongst the religious leaders at the time of Jesus was so vast, 
that when Jesus came in to clean out the money changers, let us realize that historically we discover that Caiaphas was profiting greatly off of what was happening in that culture at that time. Let me explain. At certain points of the year, Passover being one of them, Jews from all over Israel would gather into Jerusalem to sacrifice an animal on behalf of their family. And they would bring an animal with them and carry that animal and nourish that animal and nurture that animal all the way to Jerusalem from hundreds of miles away. There are actual stories of Jewish families that went above and beyond to make sure that that animal arrived in Jerusalem, even to the detriment of the actual family. However, though, because people were bringing their own animals, the religious leaders saw that they were being, what they believed, robbed of a vast fortune in financial gain. So what the religious leaders did is that they then came and instructed those who were to inspect the animals days before the Passover to reject every animal that came in from abroad, saying that there was a spot or blemish on it and that it wasn't acceptable unto God. But the person who brought it and then found that the animal had been rejected couldn't go home, of course, and get another one in time. So they would say, okay, well, since we've rejected your animal, you can now go into the uh, court and you can buy one of our pre-approved uh, animals. And of course, they, they charge an exorbitant rate for such an animal. But little did they know that the animal that they were purchasing in the court was the animal that was rejected uh, by the priest from the family just before them. The priest would take the animal, reject it, and instead of slaughtering it or using it for food, they would bring it in, then they would sell it for two to three to four times as much. And this is why Jesus was so angry at the financial corruption of the religious leaders. So the people saw that corruption. They knew that it was going on, but they had no course of action under the Roman occupancy to challenge their leaders in any way, shape, or form. In fact, historians now tell us that even the high priest had solidified a family position in that position, and it was just rotating amongst members. It was one of the first uh, showings of nepotism in the Bible. It was so corrupt at that time. So the general population and the religious leaders were hugely divided. But amongst the general population, there were those who then decided to profit from Rome. So they became tax collectors like Matthew himself. And that spurred the hatred of the rest of the Jewish people because Matthew being a Jew was now seen as one robbing from the people and taking what little they had for the Rome, uh, Rome's gain and for Herod's profitability in the building of his new temple or I should say palace there in Jerusalem. But there was another divide, and it was a spiritual one between those who thought they were righteous and those who they saw as sinners. And of course, this is what spurred on the incredible uh, witness of Jesus when he went in and dined with all of those who were outcasts from society 
the religious leaders rebuked him for it and shamed him for it. Even the disciples questioned him, saying, Lord, don't you know that you will be defiled by your interaction with these people? And of course, that's when Jesus told us, I have not come to those who are healthy, but to the sick. You know the story. There were all of these social and demographic uh, divides that Jesus knew that he had to overcome. If the kingdom of God was going to truly represent him after his ascension, Jesus knew that the kingdom of heaven would be made up of all different people there in Israel. The religious leaders like Joseph of Arimathea and, of course, Nicodemus. The average blue-collar workers such as Peter and John and so forth. You would have the tax collector, Matthew. And yet, if they carried with them into their new Christian faith this critical heart that is demonstrated in the word judge, it is a harshness that is originated and devised in the heart of the individual towards another. It really reflects the outward acting of a critical heart towards another person. And Jesus knew that he had to uh, eliminate this divide if the kingdom of heaven was going to truly represent him and be successful and fruitful going forward. He needed to get past those social divisions. And therefore, he needed to establish within the disciples' minds and hearts that no one was too far gone. That no one was out of the reach of the hand of God. That religious leaders, even as corrupt as they seem seem to be, could repent and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That the tax collectors, the, the prostitutes, and so forth, could all find saving faith in Jesus Christ. Even the common people who feel that they held to Judaism to the best of their abilities and yet worked hard, paid their taxes, could come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus needed to eliminate the criticalness of their heart by instructing them not to judge one another. Showing them that whatever judgment that they measure forward will be the same judgment that they will experience from God measured back to them. And he did it in such an extraordinary way. Masterful. He allowed the individuals to see their own sin and remind them that God had forgiven them immensely for their sin. And in the light of that mercy and in the light of that grace that they personally experience, he now says, operate from that and allow the same mercy and grace to fill the void and allow for forgiveness in those that you hold critical and those that you are harsh towards. We know it's no secret that Peter was not a fan of Matthew initially. In fact, there are many historical documents that show us that Peter and Matthew were at odds with one another due to the fact that Matthew was a tax collector. Peter was known there in Capernaum for being one of the lead fishermen. Obviously, he paid his fair share of taxes. I mean, they lived in a very heavy 
taxed state. We don't know anything about that here in Illinois. And he was very concerned. And yet when Jesus showed Matthew grace, and Jesus called Matthew to follow him, that undoubtedly was something that Peter had to see past. We need, we need to be very careful that if we are properly going to represent Jesus Christ, that we see people as he sees people. If you were to travel back to the 80s and come into the high school that I attended and see my class the year we graduated, I would be the last person that you would ever pick to discover that he would become a pastor. Most would have thought that I would have occupied our, you know, uh, correctional system. When people walked by me in the hallways, they checked to make sure that they still had their wallet. I was the last person that you'd ever expect to be a pastor. I never expected to be a pastor at that point in time. When I got saved, I said, thank goodness I just slid under the gates of heaven. I made it by that much. And then I discovered the grace of God. That it wasn't me that he was interested in the sense of what I brought to the table, but what he could do in and through me. And then I began to read about Paul, who when he got saved in the Bible... He frightened people initially because they all knew that he was the one persecuting the Christian church. Can you imagine that? We're going to have a guest speaker, Paul. What? Yeah, Paul, the guy who was just arresting us and throwing us in prison and sentencing us to death and holding the coats when Stephen was being stoned. He's going to be our guest speaker today. He's going to be doing our Sunday school classes and he's going to be teaching us. Oh, good. Run, you know. God can save anybody. We need to have that same perspective, and we must not allow the criticalness of our heart to blur that reality. God can save Democrats also. Let's put it, I mean, one of the most contested things in our nation today, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't limited but it is ever penetrating in the hearts and the lives of people. But if we carry a critical attitude towards us, if we write people off in our hearts and in our minds, if we determine that they are too far from God, then we're not going to have any interest in sharing the gospel with them whatsoever. Not only did I get saved in a very unique way, which I've shared in here in the church many, many times, but after that, I was discipled by the most... Uh, please uh, uh, excuse me for this word, but unusual people. And why do I mean that? Not that they were unusual, but I was mentored by a demographic of people that I never thought I'd be mentored by. Older saints in the Lord who just loved me unconditionally. I would walk into church and some of the uh, older, wonderful saints of the church would grab my hand and say, how are you doing this week? Can I pray for you? They would invite me out to lunch, and I went because they paid. And here I was, this punk kid with these people, and 
And they didn't care at all. They just loved me in Christ. And I would sit there eating my Denny's. You know, uh, it's usually moons over my hammy. And I, I sit there and listen to the wealth of Christian wisdom and knowledge. And little did I know that God was preparing in me the foundation for what He was going to do next. Those people were invaluable in my life. But if I only would have stayed within the demographic that I was initially comforted with, comfort, comfortable with, I never would have experienced what a blessing it was. We need to get past these things. We need to allow God to remove that critical heart within us, understanding that that same critical heart that we judge under others individually and harshly, meaning we determined from our, of course, advanced perspective, our advanced knowledge of the Word of God, our super-spiritualism determining that we are better, of course, than anyone else that allows us, therefore, to sit in that place of judgment over someone else. And I don't know how much more sarcastic I can be. We'll miss it all. This is what Jesus was alluding to. And then He said something very interesting. He said one of the reasons for the criticalness in our own hearts is because we see in them the same sins that are within us. That is demonstrated by the material in which Jesus speaks of. The speck was a splinter of wood in the Greek. Uh, That's what that word means in the Greek. It was a small shard of wood in the eye of the individual. And of course, the plank was a huge piece of wood that the carpenters would use for, you know, it would be the, uh, the, the basis for everything that they were going to make next. It was the beginning piece of wood before it had been uh, shaped and sculptured and, and um, you know, crafted into whatever it was going to be. But because it was the same material, Scholars believe that what Jesus was saying is that the critical heart that is within the individual is provoked by seeing their sins on someone else. Isn't it amazing how the sins of our own heart that occupy our own life always look worse on someone else? I can't believe so-and-so would do that, even though I just did it yesterday. And people become very critical because it is a reminder to them of their personal faults. And Jesus wanted them to understand that realize that the insurmountable issue within their life is nothing compared to the uh, plank that is in your life that Jesus overcame through His forgiveness. And therefore, since He overcame Uh, your sin through the forgiveness and the sacrifice in which he made on your behalf now you turn and do the same for others because the sin of others really have no impact on my standing in relationship with jesus christ does it but the sin in my own life that's detrimental now what jesus is not referring to is being discerning And this is the way the world often wants to throw this verse back at us. If we say that something in this world is wrong, if we say abortion is wrong, or if we say homosexuality is a sin before God, they will say to us, judge not lest ye be judged. 
thinking and mistakenly thinking that I am speaking from my own personal authority, feeling that I am better than the person in whom I am speaking with. But that's not true, is it? The authority to recognize and to see that those things are sin before God doesn't come from me, it comes from His Word. And it is derived from His character. That's where the authority comes from. And Paul makes it abundantly clear that before we address anything, we must first address ourselves. And as a result, therefore, we can address others. Now, one of the words that has confused people is this word brother, because that's the context in which we find this interaction occurring between brothers. Of course, reading it today, we would say brothers and sisters in Christ, right? But the word in Greek means one of the same ethnicity or (laughs) nationality. It's showing of a neighbor. It's speaking of a neighbor. And so he was specifically talking about individuals who are all Jewish people, who are all under the covenant of Moses, interacting with each other uh, faithfully and graciously. And so should we today. So should we today. That if I need to approach a brother and sister due to something that is inconsistent in their life, then I do so in grace, love, and mercy, knowing that I too am equally susceptible to whatever sin may be in their life. Now, I often, before addressing an issue openly and directly, I'll often go before God and pray first. Because I have a fi- I've found in my ministry that Dad deals with things even better than I can deal with things. And it's interesting how often I'll begin to pray, knowing that eventually, if nothing has changed, or if they have not repented, and I see that the sin is detrimental to the health of the congregation, that I will have to address it. But I begin to, I begin to pray first, and saying, Lord, how would you handle it? And I can't tell you how often the Spirit of God has done the work for me. The person will then come in and say, listen, I was involved in some self. I I shouldn't have. I've asked the Lord to forgive me. Can you please help me? I say, oh, absolutely. But if I do have to approach someone, and that is a rarity, actually, but if I do have to approach someone, you bet that I must first pray and examine my own heart to make sure that I am not approaching them in self-righteousness with a critical heart, and that I remember that the grace that Jesus Christ showed me is the same grace that I must show them. Remember, we're all works in progress, aren't we? None of us have arrived to that state of restored perfection. We won't until we are there face to face with Jesus. So we're all works in progress. Some of us, God has been working on longer than others. But after 30 years, I will tell you, it's amazing how far I still yet have to go. I think we need to be very careful. Because I believe the world in which we live today cultivates a critical heart within an individual. There's a lot to be critical of, isn't there? And I often have to stop myself as I'm, Dean and I may be discussing a, a subject and I was like, oh, how could they have allowed something like that to happen? And you just say, you know what? You could easily fall into that same thing too. 
And God always calls me Buster. I don't know if he does this with you. Hey, Buster, you know, you could fall into that too. Okay, Lord, I, I hope he doesn't call you that. But I always feel that that's the way he's addressing me. This is what Jesus was preparing. He uses the person's eye because he notices and realizes that our perspective is limited. It is even more limited by the fact of having a plank sticking out of it, isn't it? We don't know all that is going on. We often, and we as Americans do this all too well, we take a little bit of information and we run with it, don't we? How often have you ever gotten into the middle of something half, uh, half to, uh, you know, knowing what is going on, and, but yet you think you know it all, right? And then you get into the middle of something and you find yourself blindsided by facts that you weren't aware of. And so God not only wants to challenge the critical nature of our hearts due to the fallen condition of them, but He also wants to remind us that we have a minimal perspective on what is truly happening. And our view is so distorted that we don't even see the sin in our own life first. As the Jewish people traveled from city after city, they would often walk, of course, from one place to another. They didn't have mass transits, they didn't get on airplanes, they didn't ride subways. It was very common for travelers to get dust and debris in their eyes. It was also very common for another to help them with that dust and debris in their eyes. But Jesus, using humor and hyperbole here, it's like somebody coming up to you with a log sticking out of their own eye saying, let me help you with that speck of dust in yours. Uh, Listen, I know this thing's hurting and aggravating, but you have more serious problems than I do right now. I think it amazing that the writers of the Bible show the humor of God, the hyperbole that Jesus used. And in this humor, and he's, he's, not, uh, he's not, you know, trying to uh, eliminate the seriousness of what he is saying, but he's trying to see how silly, uh, let us see how silly it actually is for us to think that we can critically judge someone else with the limited perspective that we have forgetting what God has already forgiven us of. He calls that person a hypocrite. One who is playing a role. There are always those in the body of Christ who feels that God has appointed them. Individuals that their role, their ministry is to show and to call out the faults of everybody else. Have you ever known a Christian like that? They are some of the, unfortunately, most miserable people that you can be around. We used to have someone in the church years ago that used to email me and saying, Pastor, I don't know if you're aware of it, but so-and-so. Oh, so-and-so, yeah. Mm. And they didn't understand why they didn't get along with anybody in the church. Well, I can, I can mention a few reasons why. They didn't understand that the critical heart, the self-righteousness in which they approached others was now coming back towards them. Nobody wanted to interact with them. That's why we have to diffuse such an attitude, such a heart. It's, it's dividing. It's devastating for the health and the community of a church. 
Each and every Sunday that I walk through those doors, I am reminded constantly how much of a sinner I am and saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And that I stand up here not due to the righteousness that I have obtained through what I have done, but simply because Christ's grace allows me to do so. That's a very humbling position. And is the position that God is asking us to operate from. Notice in verse 5, he instructs the individual, first remove the plank from your own eye. Deal with yourself. And then you will, what? First and foremost, see clearly. Your perspective will be proper. You'll understand the grace in which you've experienced in the salvation in which Christ has provided you, and you'll gain humility from that understanding, allowing you in love to address someone else. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's bringing forward. And it makes all the sense in the world. He is not justifying the speck in the other person's eye. The speck still must be dealt with. But he's asking us to do it properly. He's asking us to approach them biblically. And he knew that this critical, harsh attitude that the Jews had amongst themselves would have to be overcome and would only be overcome by love and grace and understanding of the salvation that Christ has provided them through the grace of God. That's exactly what he's meaning here. We too, when we interact with one another, Let us be patient with one another. Let us be long-suffering as Christ is long, God is long-suffering with us. Let us love unconditionally. Let us allow God to work in all of us, bringing about the change in in all of us that He so desires to bring about. Because as I said so often, God loves us too much to leave us the way He found us. But he operates in our love, in our life, excuse me, not as a harsh, critical uh, individual, but one of love, a father chastening their children, hoping and desiring that that chastening, that discipline will bring about the maturity within them that they need to properly represent him throughout all the world. Now, when we see it in this historical light, it makes so much more sense to me. Because remember, he started from the very beginning and stated that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of God. And so this righteousness is displayed in humility. That if needed, we should help a brother or sister who is struggling with sin by keeping them accountable, by praying for them, by loving them. By allowing God to use you, maybe as someone to come alongside of them, as that wonderful group did for me so many years back, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the love and the grace and the kindness of those people. It was amazing. They would invite me, and then to make sure I got there, they'd say, hey, just drive with us. And then they had a captive audience. But because I was hungry and broke, I didn't care. And then I heard, and I saw the wisdom, and I saw the maturity, and I saw the love, and it was extended towards me. 
And I knew that if I ever had any difficulty, I could call any one of them at any time and they would be there in a moment's notice. Unbelievable, the grace of God. This is what we must overcome. Verse 6 is an enigma to many. Some scholars, years ago, I should say centuries ago, wondered if this was placed in Matthew incorrectly by a scribe transcribing the various scrolls of Matthew's gospel. And they didn't fully seem to see how it fit with everything else. Whenever you try to approach the Scripture and understand its proper interpretation and application, there are three contexts that you always must consider before making or drawing any conclusion. The first context is to immediately look at the verses that preceded and the verses that succeeded, and therefore getting the immediate context of what Jesus is saying. Asking questions critically like, who is he speaking to? What was going on at the time? What was happening? Why is he saying what he is saying? What can I gain from the immediate context in which I find that verse? That's the first step in, in I believe, proper what's called exegesis. The second step is taking the second context into consideration, and that is taking that verse and placing it in the context of the entire book that it is found. Understanding what Matthew's overall goals were when he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. To uh, see the, the train of thought from the beginning of his writing to the end of his writing. What emphasis and what was he trying to bring forward and how does this verse play into it all? But we can't stop there. Because there's a third context. The Bible, the Bible is uniquely compiled 66 books, 47 different authors over 12 to 1400 years. The third context is the entirety of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. So the next time you go to interpret a verse, you first need to read the paragraph, then you need to read the whole book, and then you need to read the whole Bible. That should keep you busy for a little while. But you understand the wisdom of that, don't you? So what was Jesus referring to here? Why did he make this statement. I'd like to bring forward you what I believe he is saying here. And to do so, I'd like to take you to Peter, the book of Peter. 2 Peter, chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Jesus stated in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. He says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, or to cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you in pieces. Very interesting verse. What did he mean by that? Well, we take its immediate context, and we get a little bit of understanding but not, it's not clear enough yet. We broaden that to see that in the Sermon of the Mount, there is an antagonist within his writing. 
And is it possible that the antagonist that is given to us in the writing of Matthew is identified by the dogs and the pigs? Original thinking was that Jesus was referring to the Gentiles. Because in the Old Testament, Jesus, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, uh, the Gentiles were uh, referred to as dogs. Uh, A dog was an unclean animal under the um, Mosaic Covenant. And it alludes to that in the Psalms, speaking of the Romans, prophesying the Romans, speaking of them as dogs. But that doesn't seem to fit the context in what Jesus is saying here. That Jesus is speaking of the Gentiles because we know fully well that Jesus had every intention of including the Gentiles into the church through the gospel, didn't he? So the next place that I go is I try to discover if the disciples of Jesus in their writings, that is, you know, of course, the epistles and the secondary books and so forth, such as 1st, 2nd, and uh, 3rd John, 1st and 2nd Peter, etc., give any allusion to what these verses might mean. I think that it is interesting that if we identify the antagonist within the Sermon of the Mount, we find them to be the religious leaders. Unless your righteousness succeeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The religious leaders seem to be the object of rebuke within the Sermon of the Mount. Remember that Jesus in chapter 5 goes on to identify the various misteachings of the religious leaders over and over again. You've heard it said, right? But I say this to you. You've heard this said, but I say this to you. You've heard this said, but I say this. Then you travel into chapter 6, and he says, now don't be like the hypocrites, the religious leaders, when they give, they ring the bells and everything, so everybody notices their generosity. Or when they fast, they go out all sad and mourning and drawing attention onto themselves. Or when they pray, you know, they they, uh, shout with trumpets and so forth. And then he even deals with the wealth that they have accumulated because of the corruption that is within them. Is it possible that Jesus is alluding to the religious leaders here and it is they that are represented in the words dogs and pigs, unclean things before God? It is interesting that when you get later on in Matthew's gospel and he rebukes the religious leaders in the, in the chapter of woes, woe unto you, one of the criticism is, is that outside you look great. You look all religious. You look righteous. But inside you're full of dead men's bones and all corruption. In actuality, though you may appear clean, you're defiled before God. But then you have Peter giving us an illusion and equating false teachers as dogs and pigs. And so if you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, notice what he says here concerning those who are false teachers. For when they speak great and swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, 
through lewdness the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. And while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Not only do you enter into the kingdom of God, but neither do those who follow you, Jesus said to the religious leaders. Interesting. Interesting consideration. Verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of this world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they again entangle them and overcome and are overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. And notice what he says here. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment to be delivered to them. But as it happens to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit. Mm, That's interesting. It would be interesting if we had a pig next. And a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Isn't that interesting? I believe what Jesus is saying in verse 6 is this, that the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, will be rejected by the religious leaders. I believe this is consistent with the teaching of Jesus that when he told and instructed the disciples to go into various towns, that the towns that rejected them, they should just kick the dirt off their feet and proceed to the next. It is interesting to me that in all of the Gospels, the only ones that we find Jesus in a heated rebuke with is the religious leaders. And then in a loving, affectionate way, Peter. (laughs) But the religious leaders. I think that Jesus Christ is already beginning to hold them accountable. Again, showing and demonstrating that their corruption their self-righteousness in actuality is nothing before him. And the righteousness of the individual must succeed the apparent righteousness of the scribe and the Pharisee. Now, Jesus wasn't alluding or stating that we could in ourselves exceed that righteousness. In fact, those who heard those words knew that that was an impossibility. And it would leave them in a hopeless state until you realize that Jesus Christ not only came to die on behalf of our sins through his crucifixion, but in the resurrection we are promised the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. We are robed with his righteousness before God the Father. Not that we have earned that righteousness, but that He graciously has given us that righteousness. We as Christians often feel that it's only important to do those things, or not to do those things that we have been instructed not to do. Those are called sins of commission, committing sin. But it's equally important to do those things that Jesus told us to do, and not doing them are equally sin before God. So if God were simply to forgive us our sins, we would stand before the Father in a zero net gain, as it were. That wouldn't be sufficient. 
We also need the righteous standing before God the Father to enter into His presence. That we cannot provide for ourselves, and that's what Paul brings forth in Romans, saying that Jesus has done that for us. So unless your righteousness exceeds that of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and so forth, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. How is that possible? As the disciples saw the turning away of the rich young ruler, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. I believe that's what he's saying here. He's giving us the beginning understanding that the religious leaders were going to reject Jesus as the Messiah and therefore ultimately Judging the speck in Jesus' eyes. The religious leaders did not consider the plank in their own. They could not see clearly. And therefore they unrighteously judged their own Messiah. Isn't that amazing when you think about that? Just incredible. I believe Paul summed this up for us and I'd like to read these words out of Romans to conclude our time together this morning. If you'd like to read with me, we find these words in Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 13. Please, when you are reading the New Testament epistles, look for allusions or similar words that Jesus used because what they are doing is expounding on the initial teachings of Jesus. And if we're going to get a proper interpretation and a proper application, there's no better place to find that than in the epistles. So notice what Paul says here. In Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 13, he asks a question and begins in verse 10. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. Couldn't say it any better than that. 